Well, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas, the week thereof. But more importantly, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And I am a fan of Advent because I love epic storytelling. I love the big idea. And when we go through Advent, it's a reminder that we are all a part of this unfolding story that God has been telling for thousands of years that leads up to this day and leads into the future as well. And so we kind of think about those themes on this particular season. And, and what I love in, in particular about this is the fact that it reminds us of what it is we most long for and what it is we most need, right? Like the first Sunday of Advent was all about the fact that we long for peace and God comes to deposit that peace into our lives. And then from there, we learned about hope and that he is enduring hope when the world cannot offer the hope that we most seek. And then last week, we looked at joy. Joy is this elusive thing that he makes possible because he came into the world to deposit that in our lives. But today, today's the theme that pulls all of it together. It is the theme that I believe resides at the core of God's person. It's the theme of love. And how love was so rich, so deep, so powerful, God came into the person in this frail little child that grows up to be a servant of a man who gives himself for us. That is what we remember today on this Advent season of love, this Sunday that kind of commemorates that concept. And so right now, I want to go ahead and just take a moment to pray, to get our hearts settled for today, to absorb what it is God has for us. And then from there, hopefully, we can respond in that same love that he has given unto us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that we are taking a moment out of this final busy week to really think upon you and to reflect on you and all that you've done for us. And I pray that we don't take it for granted. I don't want us to just simply go, oh, isn't that nice or quaint? But I want us to be marked and profoundly moved by the love that you have given unto us and how you did it in love for us so that we might love others like you love us. Help us to grow in that. Help us to be like you. Help us to respond like you in our world. Encourage us this day. Remind us this day. Enrich us this day, we ask in your good name. Amen. So the Christmas holiday, I was thinking about how unique it is. It's unlike any other season that we have, certainly in our culture. And I think one of the things that makes it so kind of unique and special is it's a very protracted holiday. I mean, think about this, right? You have Thanksgiving, and then for many of us, the next day we set up for Christmas, right? That next day, that Friday, that Black Friday is actually Tree Friday because we put a tree up in the house. And then that stays up and all the festivities stay alive all the way to just after the first of the year. If you take that slice of time, that's about one-tenth of our year is just Christmas. And I get it because I think we're all longing for something and we want something in this season. And so we kind of put it together in such a way that that one-tenth captures the essence of all of that. And so in that holiday, all five of our senses are pulled into the scenario. We can see the lights and the tree and the bows and the wrapping paper and everything else. We hear the songs and the laughter and the ripping of paper. Unless your grandma, she just keeps it, folds it, and keeps it till next year, right? You can smell the cocoa and 
taste the peppermint and you can feel the warmth and the hugs and all of that. And, and I think what happens as I've reflected on this is that for us, what we're kind of seeking to do is create that perfect day. We use weeks going in to make that perfect moment where there's peace and joy and hope and love. In other words, what we try to establish for ourselves in this strange sort of way, if we're thinking about the big epic story of God, is we try to establish our own little Eden there on December 25th where everything that was lost at the beginning of the story is pulled together on that morning, so much so that we even put a tree in the middle of our home, just like in Eden. But we want to remember that what brought forth the Christmas that we celebrate every year was actually the loss of Eden. It was the loss of Eden that made the need for a Christmas so profound. And why God brought forth the first Christmas for us so that we could be restored to the Eden that was lost. That's the story we've been following all the way through the Advent season. But we want to remember in that that it was painful and hard. In fact, we sing the song, Come all ye joyful, right? Faithful, joyful, and triumphant. But if we think back to what the problem really was, the song would be better written as, Come all ye faithless, joyless and defeated. Merry Christmas. See, the first Advent, the first Christmas, was the arrival of God into a broken, into a bleak, into a burdened world. But it was also the arrival of a long-awaited promise. And so we've seen that throughout the Advent season, right? We've seen that there was this problem deposited into the world on the very first page of your Bible. When everything went off the rails and we lost our relationship to God, God promised in chapter 3 of Genesis, he's like, I promise though, I will come again and I will bring one, an offspring, who will undo the damage and restore that which has been lost. That was the promise right at the beginning of the story. And then just a few chapters after that, God comes to a man named Abraham and he says, through you, I will bring an offspring who will bless the nations, change the world, restore that again which was lost. That is what the Advent season is all about. And so no sooner do we see the fall and the loss of these qualities of peace and joy and hope and love, we see God promising, I will bring it again. I will bring it anew. I will bring it fresh unto you. And that's why we celebrate then the arrival of God in the world in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't come as the mighty king on a great white horse with a giant crown and a sword in his hand and everybody realizing this is the boss in charge. No, he comes lowly. He comes meek. He comes humble. He comes as the servant and as the slave. That's how he comes in that first Christmas. See, that first Christmas, I think it's very different than the, the kind of the iconic ways that we craft it and catch it and put it on Christmas cards and put it in our nativity scenes and our houses and everything else. Like, you want to kind of humanize this for a minute. You want to capture the essence of that first Christmas because, man, it was a tough Christmas. It wasn't silent and calm and bright and postcard worthy. Now, you have Joseph, simple guy, Average dude, blue collar, swings a hammer, works with stone. 
right? He, he's sort of untested in life. He's not necessarily an older guy that's picked up all of the, the nuances of how you do things wisely. No, he's a young guy trying to figure out things as he goes, and God's going to say, you, my friend, are a part in my story now. I'm going to bring you in to this thing. And then you have Mary. Mary, she's barely a teen. She's untested, uneducated, unprepared, unremarkable in many, many ways. And they're both from this hick town, that has a bad reputation. Everybody's like, oh, Nazareth, nothing good comes from there, right? That's where we find the nucleus of our story. And God comes to these people, and he creates basically what is in essence an unplanned pregnancy, right? Comes to this young girl and doesn't say, hey, are you willing to be a part of this story? No, he just just kind of recruits her into the story. When the angel comes to Mary, it's not like, hey, are you willing to do this? But rather, God has already done this in you, so here's where we're going. See, that would be deeply challenging. Because what you see in the story is that God is coming to two nobodies from nowhere with nothing to change everything, to bring the great counteroffensive in the whole thing that has sort of fallen apart. And I think the way the story starts with this young couple that doesn't have anything and everything seems to be stacked against them, I think that captures the essence of even how Jesus will conduct his life as he goes through life and certainly those last three years of his ministry. In fact, later a man named Paul writes about the life of Jesus as far as how we should model what we see in him. And so this is what he says. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. He can make demands and say, hey, I'm God. I don't have to stoop. I don't have to serve. I don't have to give. I don't have to suffer and sacrifice and die. I don't have to do that. But he didn't do that. He didn't cling to that. Instead, it says he gave up his divine privileges. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form and being found in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So God can come in any number of ways, but the way he comes is in this way. He comes to be a nobody, born to a couple of nobodies, so that he could rescue a whole lot of somebodies, like you in this room today, you watching online today. See, that was his mission, that was his heart, and he did all of this out of great passion for the world. Now, we could look at that story and say, well, isn't that tranquil? Isn't that quaint? Isn't that kind of romantic? No, it was a story of hardship and pain and rejection, right? That's the first Christmas. I mean, think about Mary again, how terrified she would be. Like, she's not naive. She knows the culture she's in. It's incredibly patriarchal. It looks at women in a certain way, and she is not going to fit the mold. Nobody's going to listen to this young teenage girl that's pregnant and believe the story that it's a miracle baby. Nobody's going to. They're going to say, oh, you're the biggest liar in town. You're trying to kind of escape the reality of your mistake. And so she's going to have a stigma the community is going to whisper as she walks by. Her own family is going to look at her as like a failure, as, as a blight on, on the family, as a shameful individual. That's the weight she will bear. She will suffer. In fact, we see later after Jesus is born, right after he's born, the first week, a prophet speaks to her and says, oh, guess what? This child is going to be blamed for the rising and falling of many people. 
in the community. And on top of that, you will be pierced in your own soul by what happens with your child. You will suffer for this child. That sounds painful. That's the ride she's in for. And then you got Joseph, right? He's engaged to this girl, and now she's going to come to him and say, listen, I'm pregnant, but it's from God. Is he going to buy that story? No, he doesn't. We see that in Matthew. He's like, oh, no, I don't believe that. I'm going to just go ahead and and kind of put you away secretly, privately, because he's a good guy. He doesn't want to make it already bad for her, even though it's bad as it is. He doesn't want to make it worse. So he's going to do it quietly because he knows, man, I can't go through with this. This is not my child. But then an angel comes to Joseph and says, no, you, you need to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph says, okay, I'll do it. I'll take on the burden, and I'll I'll take her as my wife, and I'll raise this child as my son. You have to understand, as soon as he does that, he will be whispered about in the community. He'll be seen as a sucker and a sap and a gullible guy that was willing to buy this girl's story and marry her anyway, and everybody's going to look at that and go like, you kidding me? I'm not going to hire that guy for my contractor. That guy's a dork, right? So they're going to suffer, They're going to have pain. This will be hard. This is not an easy story. And so he will suffer. She will suffer. All of this foreshadows the fact that the child himself, he will suffer as well. But they sign on. And signing on, frankly, is the easiest part. It's easy to say yes to God on the front end before you've had to suffer for God in the middle and back end. And so eventually they begin to suffer pretty quickly ends up that she's now in her third trimester and Rome has said, you know what, it's time for a census. And the census is designed to count the heads to make sure they know how to tax the people. And so now Joseph has to travel back to his hometown of Bethlehem, about 100 miles, while his wife's in her third trimester so he can be counted, so he can pay more money to Rome. Man, that's suffering. And they travel 100 miles in the third trimester. I mean, do that math for a minute. Imagine if you were having to do that today, to go from like Duval to Yakima on foot. See, we see see all the quaint stories of, well, no, Mary rode a donkey. There's no donkey in the story, right? We three kings of Orientar are not kings, not Oriental, and not three. We mess up the whole story sometimes, right? But they have to make this trek. And then they get to Bethlehem, and no sooner do they get there, she begins to go into labor, and so now they're out of time, uh, they're out of options, they're trying to find a bed for the night, can't find a bed, they end up in some trough, stable, cave thing someplace, and that's where she's going to have the child. Again, the story is suffering, but it's the reality of humanity. In fact, I think God kind of has the story as it is. So we remember that our condition was that of fear and fatigue and rejection and pain and insecurity and sweat and tears and hardship. It's all there. And so here's Joseph. He's a carpenter, calloused hands, trying to bring forth a child from his young bride. You know what they didn't do with nice Jewish boys back then? Teach them how to be midwives. Right, So he's just like, I'm operating above my pay grade. I don't know what I'm doing. I swing hammers. I don't birth babies. But now he's in the space to do that, and he sees his wife suffering. He sees her in pain, but he's got to be there for her in ways that he just doesn't know fully what to do. And then there's Mary, right? Blood, sweat, tears, pain, contractions. 
Normally your mother would be there, your aunts would be there, the extended family of women would be in your life, but all she has is her husband in this space. And they're in this dark, dank, cold cave. It's so bad that we see elsewhere in the story, the shepherds are out in their fields watching their flocks by night. Why out in the fields? Because being in the barn would be terrible on this night. And that's where she births God, the Savior of the world. They do all of this for this precious child, this baby who is God, this slave king, who's born into rags for clothes, a feeding trough for a crib, and a cave for a nursery. See, this first Christmas reminds us. It reminds us how broken our world is, how fragile life can be, and how desperate our situation was. But it also reminds us of how much our God loves us, how much our God loves you, how much our God loves the world. This is the mission. It's where God says, you know what? I'm going to trade a robe for rags. I'm going to trade the praise of heaven for the disdain of humanity. His gaze had been on a crystal sea for all eternity, but now he says, I'll come into the world and I will set my gaze on a cross, on abuse, on hatred, and on death. Why? For you. Because God so loved you. That is the story of Christmas. That is why God came into the world. And it wasn't just some shallow, sappy love. Like, hey, I love y'all. No, the love of God is a love of affection and conviction and relentless pursuit. It's a love that seeks to rescue us from our sin, from our shame, from our failure, from in many ways ourselves. That's what he offers and that's what he gives. In fact, Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2, and I love this. He sets up the problem and then he celebrates the solution. As to the problem, he says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following our passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And so we were against God. At most, we might want God, but in a way that we could reforge and fabricate in our image to our likeness, to our liking. But that's not necessarily the one true God. And yet, while we were against God, according to this, God was relentlessly in pursuit of his rejectors. So we were in rebellion, but then it says in verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together by, with Christ. Thus, by grace, you have been saved. I love the story because it says, hey, we were in rebellion, we were lost, we were broken, but God loved you and came in his grace, right? Committed to the project. John says it this way. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away 
our sins. See, this is God's conviction. This is why I say of all of the virtues of God, love is by far the most profound to me because it overcomes our, our own dislike, our own lack of want. God's like, it doesn't matter if you don't want me. I want you. It doesn't matter if you reject me. I accept you. That is his passionate drive for us. And so he relentlessly pursues and he pursues us in love so that he could deposit his love in us so that we then can become vessels and conduits of that same love toward others because that heals the world. The more we lean into the love of God, experience the love of God and display the love of God, that brings healing. In other words, it goes back to the promise of Genesis. It undoes the damage. It goes back to the promise of Abraham. It brings blessing to the nations when we live in that love and express that love. In fact, when we go into Ephesians chapter 3, Paul continues his thinking here about what it is he wants us to experience based on what God has expressed to us. And so he prays. He says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Go, great, why? Well, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Great. Why? Well, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I love this because he's really highlighting, I want you to get what this love's all about. That this love that's been deposited on you is wide enough for the whole world and long enough to last forever and high enough to go to the heights of heaven and deep enough to reach the most lost and darkened soul. That is love. That is why we celebrate Christmas where God came into our world of pain and fear and hurt and dysfunction and grief. In love to unveil love. So that us being loved could then turn and respond with a love without limits. Just as we were loved without limits, we might then love without limits. And real quick, I think we love in three basic ways. The first way is that we love without limits our God. God loved us without limits so that we might turn and, and love him without limits. In fact, Jesus tells us one half of the greatest commandment when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. Like, this is what you're to do. And when we go into 1 John, John says, you know what, and here's what it means to really love God, that you obey his commands and those commands are not burdensome to do. And that doesn't mean obeying God is easy or simple or always fun. But if we really love God because we've sensed the love of God, then obeying God, man, I'm grateful to do it in the end. It reminds me of like with my wife, Ellen. When we were married, we made vows. And those vows are kind of like the commands that bind us together. And I promised that I would love and honor and cherish her. And there's certainly going to be days where that may be hard because I can be a selfish person. But at the end of the day, it's not a burden to do that because I genuinely love my wife. It's not a burden to love, honor, and cherish because that's my commitment. And that gives me joy. At the end of the day, it gives me deep joy to do that. It's the same thing with God. When God says, hey, I want you to live for me. If we really love him, we go, man, that's not a burden. Sometimes it's hard. 
Sometimes it's sacrifice. Sometimes it's pain, but it's not a burden because they love God. And so, man, because he's loved me, I can love him. The second way we direct our love is frankly toward those who, who love us in return. Friends, family, people we're connected to. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's a way that we can love. But here's why this is important. I think sometimes the people we tend to hurt the most are the ones we claim to love the most. It's part of the weakness of the human condition. And so the more we kind of lean into our life in God, the more that life in God can lean in and through us so that we can love those who are around us that we are meant to love with fullness, with sacrifice, with conviction and commitment. That's how we love. But then the third way that we are to love is the tough one. And that is we are to love those who don't love us. Jesus said it this way. He says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Now, does that mean I say, hey, I love you enemies? Is it as good as that? As long as I say I love them, am I good? No, he says, here's what it means to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. See, I, I admit, this to me is the pinnacle. This is the one that we want to strive for. I believe if, if we do this, this really changes the world. This really heals the nations and brings blessing. And I believe that because when I think about this particular element of what Jesus encourages, I believe he encourages it because he himself did it for us. See, when Jesus came into the world to show us love, he loved his enemies. He loved those who didn't want him, didn't seek him, didn't desire him, didn't want to necessarily follow him. Uh, we were disinterested. And yet he was invested. And so he came to be among us to give himself in love for us. And so I believe when we love God and we love the lovely and we love our enemies, man, what happens is we actually experience more love. It's like we're leaning into God and therefore from that, man, God is leaning into us. 1 John 4, 16. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Now I know that sounds like a Yodaism. All who live in love live in God. You know, like it's, a, it's like a weird, like you're like, what do I do with that? But, but the idea is kind of simplistic. The more I live every day in God, the more I'm seeking out God, I'm hungry, thirsting, driving, striving, just I'm impassioned to be what he wants me to be, to be close to who he is, his love then flows in and through me. I'm living my life in him, his love is in me, and that, from that I can love others well. Right, that's what it's all about. And again, when Jesus came into the world, he didn't show this love to people that wanted it, but he showed it to those who needed it, and that's the first Christmas. We talk about giving gifts. That's God's gift to us. I love you even when you didn't love me. But now because I have loved you and you love me, I let my love live through you so that you might love others in my name. Man, I love that. I love that theme. We know love so we can be known for love. Therefore, everything in life is an excuse to show love, right? When things are good, and it's blissful, and there's joy. Man, all kinds of good reasons to love. But you know what? You're going to have some bad days. You're going to be hated, disrespected, not listened to, misunderstood. 
and those days become an excuse for love as well. Because again, what this is all about, again, I can't say it enough, is love. Right? Christmas, God coming into the world to love us so we might love others. And what does this love look like? I close with Paul's definition. Love is patient and it's kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way and it's not... uh, It keeps no record of wrong, even if it is wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. See, that is the essence of the love that we want to share. To let that be our definition, to let that be our driver and our directive. Because we've been loved so we can love. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for that which we didn't deserve, we didn't earn, and yet you gave anyway. I thank you that you are faithful to us. I thank you that you made promises from day one and you have fulfilled those promises. I thank you that you were relentless in your pursuit. I thank you that you were loyal to the cause. And I thank you that you invite us into a life with you. There may be some in this room this morning or some watching online where you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus. But maybe today you're like, maybe this is the day. This is the day I I, I want my life to be given to his cause. I want to embrace his love for me and live out that love. If that is you, that is a prayer way where you say, Jesus, it's what Paul said. I was going my own way, doing my own thing, writing my own rules, and you came for me. I want to submit my life to you and follow you. If you make that your prayer with your words He hears you. He knows your heart. He brings you into the family. And if you make that your prayer today, whether you're online or here in the room, on our app, we have a tile. You can let us know you made that decision. We'd love to know that. But we thank you for being here. We thank you for considering that question. I pray that you enter into the family today. Jesus, for the rest of us, again, we thank you for your commitment. We thank you for your love. May we love like you because you have so richly loved us. We thank you in your name.